Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to this week's Geek Town Radio. It's a special this week as we have just come back from the weekend at MCM Comic Con in Birmingham. Great, if very cold weekend in, in Birmingham. Uh, it snowed horrendously on the second day, but that didn't stop people coming out. Had a really great time. Some amazing guests as well this time around. So I thought it'd be worth putting the interviews with some of those guests up on the uh, podcast. So we have not one, not two, but three interviews for you this week with some great people you can actually see video versions of these interviews up on the youtube channel which is youtube.com forward slash geek town but i know a lot of people will listen to this in the car you can't really watch youtube whilst you're in the car if you're driving so uh, here's the audio only versions of those but you can watch the full things online as well before we get into the interviews there's a couple of air date updates i thought you might be interested in because there's been a few things announced recently American Idol, if you're a fan of, of that show, uh, it's moved over onto Amazon Prime. They've got now got the UK rights. So if you've been missing American Idol and can't find it on normal TV, it's on Amazon Prime Video if you want to go and watch that. Sky Atlantic have renewed Britannia for a second season. So if you enjoyed that show, that's back. There's a couple of new announcements today as well. Netflix have set a premiere date for the new Legends of the Monkey series, which is, uh, for those of you old enough to remember the Monkey TV series, it's a kind of new version version of that that's coming on the 27th of april it's called the new legends of monkey netflix have also picked up the uk rights to happy which is this wonderfully bonkers tv show about an ex-cop and an animated relentlessly positive imaginary blue horse called happy voiced by pat Oswald. It looks brilliant. That's arriving on Netflix on the 26th of April. Also being announced that Sci-Fi UK has picked up the UK rights to Marvel's Runaways, which is again coming in April. That's coming on the 18th of April. That's another one of the Marvel superhero comic book adaptations, which I'm very much looking forward to. It's a Hulu series, but it looks really great, uh, based on a Brian K. Vaughan book. So that's another one to look out for. Now we'll move on to the interviews. So the three people that I'm putting on the show are Sean Gunn, Michael Rooker and Mark Shepard. There are a couple of other interviews which are up on the YouTube channel, which was with uh, Troy Baker and Nolan North, who are the uh, voiceover and motion capture artists for The Last of Us and the Uncharted franchise. If you've never seen an interview with those guys before, they're hilarious together. It is well worth going to watch that. 
We also did a little interview, which is good for some of the older members of the audience. Uh, we did an interview with Jan Chappelle, who played Callie on Blake 7, the classic British sci-fi TV series. So uh, if you were a fan of that, there was a little, it's only about seven minutes, that interview, but that's up on the YouTube channel as well, if you want to go and watch that. But the three interviews that we have today, we're kicking off with Sean Gunn who is uh, brother of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy director James Gunn. He's also played Kraglin in the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. Interestingly, he also appears as Rocket Raccoon, although not on screen. He's what they call a sort of stand-in. So he is on set to read the lines and basically do the performance of Rocket, which is then CGI'd over with the Rocket we all know and love, and then revoiced by Bradley Cooper. He's also probably very well known to a lot of people as Kirk from the Gilmore Girls which I think anybody that listens to the show knows what a huge fan I am of the Gilmore Girls so it was really lovely to have him on these were done in a kind of round table so it's not all me asking the questions you'll hear various different voices from people asking questions in the room Sean was really lovely he uh, answered lots and lots of stuff few Gilmore Girls questions quite a lot obviously of Guardians questions so here's the interview with Sean hope you really enjoy this we'll see you afterwards for the next interview sean it's amazing to have you with us um fun's limited so we're going to jump straight in and i guess the first most obvious question you've been on set working with an amazing lineup of brilliantly talented people for infinity wars and i'm curious what's that experience been like how do they compare with um working with the rest of the guardians game well, I mean, both experiences were were great individually. Um, I uh, we've really built quite a family on the Guardians movies, and I love that cast so much. And then it was it was great to then work with a, you know see a lot of the old people, but also work with a new bunch of people on the uh, Infinity War movies. Um, I, I just I, I have so much respect for everyone that I worked with, and also for the people who who put these casts together. I mean, it's, um, you know, Hollywood's kind of a strange place. And uh, I, I got to say, I've really enjoyed all of the people that I've been able to, to meet and learn from. What about Joe and Anthony as directors? Obviously, a different experience working with James, mm-hmm. I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love Joe and Anthony. They're uh, very different from my brother, but all directors are. And uh, I also haven't known them since I was born. So that makes it a little different. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, they're great. They um, And I like how they work off one another and they're pretty unflappable um and i think that that's one area where they are that they share with my brother is that they're very calm set presences which um which can be hugely important in films like these working on the Gilmore Girls revival was that Mm -hmm. kind of a weird thing to go back after doing Guardians of the Galaxy yeah well I was actually I was kind of uh doing double duty triple duty if you consider both roles in Guardians and then also doing Gilmore Girls at the same time so um we were shooting Guardians 2 simultaneously I was flying back and forth between Georgia and California to do those roles. But uh, but the good thing about going back into a Gilmore Girls again is that it was kind of like putting on a comfortable old pair of slippers 
you know, I, I, it didn't take long to get back into that character. Um, Kirk is very, very familiar and available to me. Um, and, uh, when the writing is as good as it is, it's, it makes it that much easier. Is it like rocket <laughs> <laughs> Well, now, you know, most of the, most of the, um, the stills that people see are from the first movie when I was wearing the green leotard. But in the subsequent films, I just wear a gray tracksuit, which is uh, a lot more comfortable and less dorky looking than the uh, than the than the leotard. So um, so that's a little bit better. But yeah, no, I'm I'm four movies now into doing uh, doing Rocket on set, and I think sometimes I forget when actors show up for the first time who've never actually seen me do it. They get a little freaked out by like, whoa, that guy's really just getting down and walking on his, uh, you know, in a crouch position. Is he method acting then, would you call it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't run around and eat trash like uh, raccoons do. But, um, but yeah, I... Uh, I did. I did have to dig on some of some of my drama school training, being an uh, being an animal, going down and being an animal. Previously worked with Michael Rooker on Super, another one James Bond movie. Yeah. Was it interesting to get back in when you were doing Yonder and Parklin with Guns of the Galaxy? Oh God, I just want to do one movie without Rooker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is that why you separate on the panel now? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> I uh, I love Rooker. He's uh, he's like a crazy uncle. Um, and uh, and I knew him. We were friends before we even did Super. So um, you know, I've done now. I guess we've done four movies together. So yeah. talking about cracking, how's the whistling coming on? Gosh, I hope it's coming along well. We need we need Craglin to learn how to use that whistle, don't we? We do. I need if I'm gonna have a. Any sort of an imprint on the third movie, I think you better learn. And obviously, we're going to hopefully have Craglin back in a big capacity in the third movie, but I think it was interesting. Fans noticed that you're not listed as Craglin on the cast list on at least IMDb for Infinity Wars. So, mm -hmm. um, is Craglin not going to be a part of that, or are we going to see you in that capacity there? I think I can't really answer. Um, you won't see Craglin in the first Infinity War movie, and, um, and then after you all see it, we can talk further after that. <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of things happen in that movie that bear on subsequent movies. So, so I think obviously, I mean, in the last film, it was really nice to see Craiglin go from just a supporting character to really a full-fledged guardian. Um, is that something you're excited about with the third film? Has James sort of told you that's something that he's excited about? Yeah, we've talked a little bit about, he, he tells me some, uh, he gives me some hints here and there about what the uh, what the plot will be like for the third movie. I haven't seen any words or seen any script, but he sort of will sit me down and say, it's kind of going this direction. And and he's such a uh, diligent planner that usually the way he says things are going to work out, they usually are pretty close to, to going that direction. So um, I, I don't know. I, I never get my hopes up. Hopes up. It's, it's Hollywood. You, you're really not in the movie until the movie's finished, which is a long ways from now. And I... Uh, I care more about the story than about the characters, so I just want the movie to be great, but anything that they that they ask me to do, I'll be ready to do, for sure. How does it feel switching back and forth between Craig and Rocket on set? The scenes where I have to play both characters, and there are a, a few of them, particularly in the second movie, I think there's about four scenes where both characters have dialogue, and, uh, and it is definitely the trickiest thing I've had to do in my career. I really just have to kind of tackle the scene from both angles, and then when we're on set, try to uh, maintain my my focus. You know, I think um, I think good acting, a, a large percentage of any good acting is preparation and focus. 
So on those days when I'm doing both, I just need to be doubly prepared and as focused as I can be and, and try to do the scene from both points of view. But also it's, it's always a little bit easier because I know if I, if I screw up as Rocket, they can fix it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Does James ever let you choose a song on the soundtrack? James doesn't let anyone choose any songs on the soundtrack. I think he takes, you know, it's funny. He uses a lot of songs that I've loved my whole life as well as him. We're really, my brothers and I are really, really into music. And I'm, I'm never surprised by his selections. He's never used a song that I don't know. But I also think he takes a lot of pride in being able to say that he personally handpicks all the songs with no help from anyone. So I'll let him have that. What sort of songs would you put on a soundtrack for a third film, mate? If you were allowed one or two song choices. Oh, man. Well, w what I like about the third movie is that, I, and, and I don't, this is speculation, I don't know this from James, but it seems to be set up that the that the soundtrack might, would come from uh, from Yandu's Zune in the third movie. Uh, I mean, that might be a guess, but, uh, so it'd be interesting to see what, what, uh, what Yandu listens to. I'd love to hear something like uh, Jukebox Hero, I think, would be fun. Now that I've said that, it won't be in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talking about things that aren't in the movie, the outtakes from Guardians are hilarious in their own right. Mm. Do you have a favorite, and is there anything that didn't make it onto film but was hilarious on set at the time that you wish people could see? Well, I like that outtake that's in the from the second movie at the end when I'm going over the, the bands, <laughs> when, when um, Star-Lord and Craglin are talking about the bands on the on the Zoom and um, Craglin mentions Thin Lizzy and uh, that chick Alice Cooper. And, you know, <laughs> um, that's certainly a lot of fun. You know, I, we're pretty lucky, though. I mean, it, there's been very little that's been cut from, from the movie. I think I had one one scene as Rocket from the first movie um, and then you know some little bits and pieces of stuff with Craglin from both movies but for the most part what we shoot goes in the film with so many talented artists on there how, how free are you to maybe uh, improv a bit and how much of that is reflected in the final film you know, we we don't improv that much. I would say that um, most of the dialogue is performed as written in the script. Things that are improvised are more likely to be buttons at the end of scenes. So, like, just a, a joke line that, that it goes out on and something like you have a little more room to play there. The bulk of the improvising is done by my brother from behind the camera. So I know that he has his script that he works with that we've seen, and that he also has his alternate line script that he has for every day, which are things that he's he's feeding us as we're acting. He'll say, do it again now with this line, now with this line. But just like everything, even though they're, they they feel like ad-libs to us because we haven't heard them, he's super prepared and usually has a list of them uh, ready to go. Not a whole lot is actually thought of right there on the spot. There are a few lines here and there, but but most of it's scripted. Yeah, what about Chris Pratt? Does he come up with a few one-liners he shouldn't do? Yeah, you know, we, there's, they definitely have fun. And I know that um, my, my brother will say to Chris at certain moments, here's an opportunity if you want to ad-lib something or throw something in. You can do it there, and they talk about it. But it's never pandemonium, you know? It's never like everybody's saying whatever the, the hell they think is funny at the, at the moment. It's We stick to the script for the most part and have fun, but it's a, it's controlled fun. I think, obviously, everyone absolutely adored Baby Groot. We're so glad we got a whole film with him. Because what can we expect from Teenage Groot? Well, gosh, I don't know. Well, you saw a little bit of Teenage Groot in, his, uh, in the tag scene for the, the second movie. So um, you, you don't have too long to wait now. So I I, uh, I just need to keep my mouth shut so I don't say anything. <laughs> because everybody refers to him as Teenage Groot. 
through. Mm -hmm. But James actually said he was a preteen. So how old is Groot? Because he said on that tag team that he was a preteen. <laughs> In the tag scene? Yeah, when he, when he was talking about the tag scene at some point, he actually said that Groot was a preteen, not a teen. Right, uh, yeah. for the, for, for, at yeah. the end of Guardians 2. Yeah. Well, I, I so think does that, that make him about 11 or 12 or... Yeah, you know, yeah. Bro, I mean, Groot certainly ages more quickly than than uh, a human does because yeah. baby Groot in the second movie is about exactly. three months old, yeah. you know, is still, which is very young, but yeah. still old enough to kind of like walk around and speak. So I think that whatever time may have passed between the second Guardians and First Infinity War is probably aged him a little bit more. Yeah. Have you seen the latest Infinity War trailer? Watch six yeah. Uh, Tony Stark. That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I can't wait to, uh, I can't wait to see that on, on the big screen, but I, I have inside knowledge about a lot of that stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're amongst friends. Come on, we want yeah, to tell right, Of course. <laughs> yeah. We don't care yeah. about your career. Yeah. yeah. I think when I say here, stays here, right, guys? <laughs> 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 I think on the subject of Groot, um, James recently, I think, um, upset a lot of people when he confirmed the fact that the Groot that we see in Guardians Volume 2 is not the Groot that we've known and loved from the first film, but is his son, in fact, and that the Groot in the first film is officially dead. And I think that sort of changed people's perspective on the end of the first film. How did you feel about that? Um, well, it certainly doesn't change my perspective of the end of the first film because I, I think that regardless of the, the mechanics of it or the biomechanics of it, you know, the idea of Rocket preserving that peace from his friend packs some emotional weight, regardless of what exactly it is that we're looking at. I don't think that that changes how special that moment is. And it certainly doesn't um, take away from the sacrifice, if anything. If anything, it enhances the sacrifice that Groot makes in the first movie. But um, you know, I don't know. I I didn't know. I didn't know much about Groot uh, procreation myself. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning just like you guys. We're are. learning as James teaches us. Yeah, something right. Rocket is officially Groot's mother. Then, <laughs> well, like <by the> seals, <laughs> you know, he's certainly his. Uh, he's certainly his adopted guardian. I would say that. Which character in Infinity War the best reactions of a talking raccoon? Oh gosh, um, I think you're. You're going to have to be the judge of that. <laughs> I think you're going to have to be the judge of that. Although it was certainly fun to see many of these new characters through the eyes of Rocket. Because, you know, Rocket does not have the same sort of reverence for the superheroes that the average Earthling is going to have. Yeah. So uh, I think there's a lot of fun there. More on that point, is there a scene where Rocket encounters a wild raccoon and sort of gets the revelation of, like, introspectively, like, who he is? Anything like that? I can't comment on it. <laughs> <laughs> is it easier or harder working with family compared to working with other directors? Uh, it's just different. Um, one of the reasons that I think my brother and I work so well together is that, yes, we've worked together since we were... We were kids in, in different capacities. So our, our shorthand for communicating with, with one another is, is very clean and very, uh, very easy. But also, I think we're both perfectionists within our own jobs. He's very much, um, 
you know, he's a very good director and a very clear director. And I take my job as an actor very, very seriously. And so I think that even if we were just meeting for the first time, I still think he and I would work together really, really well because he's good at talking to actors. And I would like to think that I'm good at listening to directors. <laughs> um, the, the advantage is, is that um, in any period of time where I need to figure out how to work with somebody to have a creative relationship, that part of the job is already done. We already have a yeah. creative, creative relationship so, walk in the door. So you definitely don't have a Sam and Ted Rainey relationship then with your brother. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, but, you know, and then the negative things, he doesn't, you know, we, we don't, we're, we're not very competitive in, in my family. And he's the older brother and I'm the younger brother. So I think that's good. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I love, I love working with my brother. I, I hope that we continue to work together here and there for the rest of our careers. I would think that we would. I don't need to do everything he's in. And, and you know, he's producing stuff right now. I'm not going to do So it's, it's like, I don't need to, like, we can go off and do our separate things. But yeah, I'll always say yes, obviously. <laughs> Gardens of the Galaxy reunited at the end of Gardens of the Galaxy 2 for the comic series. Mm -hmm. Would you like Harriet to be in a spin-off of the rest of them? I would love to work with those guys, I can tell you that. But I try not to... I, I try not to I can really prognosticate about what's going to go, about what's going to happen, because you're only setting yourself up for disappointment. If you, if you try to worry about where you want the story to go, you got to let it just kind of go where it, where it goes. <laughs> Who would be your uh, dream celebrity cameo akin to Kurt Russell? In the last one. Oh my gosh! I mean, I already worked with the Hoff on the uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the Guardians Inferno video. I don't know how it gets better than that. Gosh, I gotta say, with everybody that I've worked with on these movies, not just Guardians, but now Infinity War, my uh, my cup runneth over with big, um, you know, famous, iconic actors. So I'm I'm happy with anybody, truly. I think the Inferno video was one of the most glorious things we've ever seen. Oh. Can you talk about the experience of filming that and, of course, working with Zardu Hassel for himself? Yeah, right. That was really fun, that Guardians video. It was something that I think they um, threw together pretty quickly, but, you know, they, they saw the link for the original, for the weird Star Wars dance video that it was kind of, <laughs> that it was kind of based on. Um, and, uh, you know, this is something we got together in a, in a day and, uh, you know, had an absolute blast. Did you get to choose which moustache to <laughs> <laughs> They had some ideas. We, we, we worked on it a little bit together, but I, I certainly was very, very pleased with, uh, with how that worked out. I got to play that character in a movie the, like, the whole time, I think. <laughs> what was David Hasselhoff like? I mean, obviously, it's lovely to see him pop up in the film as well. Oh, he's a lovely man. I just saw him at the Black Panther premiere, and uh, it was uh, it was good to uh, to catch up. He's uh, he's such a gregarious, big personality, very warm, warm dude. Actually, this is one probably more for your brother, but everyone wants to know when Nathan Fillion's going to turn up in Guardians. Oh, when Nathan Fillion's going to turn up? Gosh, I don't know. I'm always happy to see him. Though. <laughs> we haven't yet. <laughs> no, sure. Obviously, you you, um, you probably have a fan base starting from Gilmore Girls. Mm -hmm. How have you found since? Becoming part of the MCU family, have you had any different interactions with fans? Have fans changed how they approach you? Well, people talk a lot about the fanboys and fangirls from the MCU and how rabid they are, but... I assure you that Gilmore Girls fans give them a run for their money every step of the way in their fervor for, for what they love. Um, I'm very grateful to be part of both those franchises, and I think it starts with like really 
great writing and great stories, and I've been very lucky to be part of those. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys. So that was the interview with Sean Gunn. Hope you really enjoyed that one. Next up, we have his Guardians of the Galaxy castmate, Michael Rooker. We were a bit concerned about Michael Rooker going into this because he's known for being kind of wild when he goes up on stage and he goes up and takes the mic and runs into the audience and stuff. Thankfully, the press room, he was a bit like calmer and toned down a bit, but uh, was still a really good interview. He, of course, played Yondu in Guardians of the Galaxy, but you also probably know him as Mel Dixon from The Walking Dead as well. Really great guy. Lovely to spend some time with. Starts off the interview by talking about uh, what he's been doing in Birmingham prior to coming to the con, which apparently was visiting a place called Coffin Works, which is a casket museum. So um, yeah, interesting way to spend your time. But uh, here's the interview with Michael Rucker. We'll see you afterwards for the last interview. 
um, maybe what's going on backstory and all that kind of stuff, and then uh, do another movie and actually get to sh- get to do it. You know, so that was very cool. Do you find a new generation of uh, younger people coming to your work now? Because they won't be familiar with things like Henry Portrait and the Serial Killer, will they? But they more be familiar with Yondu, Guards in the Galaxy. Are you seeing your fan base change, I suppose, is the question. My fan base has changed quite a lot, uh, especially with my casting in The Walking Dead. Yeah, of course. Uh, you're on you're on the tube, we call it over here, right? Mm-hmm. The, the TV? Yeah. And you're you're there every week, and you become a, a sort of a household name and, and that sort of stuff. And so that's what happened with uh, The Walking Dead. For me, Merle Dixon was quite a fun role for me, a very uh, politically incorrect kind of guy, you know, and so he would almost say and do anything practically. And and so, um, you know, people either, I think you you really were into, you were very into Merle Dixon. You did, I'm I'm not sure if you would be uh, 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 for Merle or against Merle. You You didn't think... Uh, whatever you thought about him, you were like, whenever Merle Dixon came on screen, you were glued to the screen, which is very cool uh, to get a lot of uh, younger um, uh, a fan, a bit a bigger fan base because of that show. Um, and, uh, and it's just continued. With that, uh, after leaving that show, I, I went on to do uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Which is very highly uh, popular film, and then uh, and then Volume Two, of course, which you know, uh, very similar events happened from uh, The Walking Dead. You know, uh, Merle Dixon dies in a very kind of a heroic kind of stance, and the same thing happened in um, Volume Two, the, and very similar uh, responses from fans. You know, they cried, they were upset, a lot of emotions went through. Both of those, uh, both of those characters' uh, deaths, and uh, and, um, and I think because of that, you know, um, I got a whole other group of fans. Yeah, yeah. You know, so uh, it's very quite interesting how how things, uh, 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 you know, your career changes and grows and, and develops, and uh, you know, I've been very pleased and very happy through those changes. So. Taking back to Merle Walking Dead for a second, yeah. did you have any inkling of how big the show was going to get? I mean, it's been a very big comic scene, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and you had Frank Darabont in the start of the first series. I mean, did, you, did you have this feeling that Walking Dead was going to be a big hit? Not before I was cast, or even when I had been cast, I was like, oh, I don't know if people are going to get I don't know if Middle America is going to dig this. And But boy, oh boy, they did. They really enjoyed it, and they enjoyed it immensely. So um, I was very um, surprised by it. Well, with Guardians, uh, obviously the um, goodbye scene between Peter and Yondu really hit people because it was one of the most emotional and one of the only proper deaths we've seen in the Marvel Universe. Can you talk about working with Chris on that film and both that scene and uh, some of the more comedic moments? I think the Mary Poppins line is, again, a fan favorite. Yeah, you know, the Mary Poppins line was a fan favorite. And, and honestly, Chris sets that up extremely well. I mean, without Chris's comments, the Mary Poppins line would just be a, a standalone kind of line. But with his comment, along with my response, is what made that line absolutely go 
crazy with fans. They loved it. It was a beautiful moment. And the, the entire uh, uh, crew loved it. But they broke up in laughter, you know, almost every time we did the take. And so, um, and, you know, uh, the second part of your question... Well, I guess on the flip side, that's such a beautiful moment. And then yeah. so soon afterwards, we have this incredibly painful moment losing Yondu. Can you talk about well, going from one to the other? Well, that's James Gunn. Um, for me, acting-wise, you just sort of play it. As the character, you don't know what's going to happen, right? You're just going through your life, right? You're doing the things you need to do, right? And, and so uh, I'm not thinking about that end scene where I'm doing the Mary Poppins, uh, that, that sequence. I try to keep it as simple as as I can. I don't try to think about other things while I'm in the moment of that scene. The hard part uh, with film work is that they they film out of sequence. Mm. So I, I wasn't sure, even in the beginning of my career, you mentioned Henry Portrait of mm. Serial Killer. That movie, I, I ended up doing that movie simply because I wanted to see if I, if I could even do this, this film work. It, it just seems so strange to have to jump do the ending before you're doing the beginning and all that kind of stuff and you're flipping and flopping all over the place right and um i wasn't even sure if i was going to be good at it or if it was going to be even rewarding for me as an artist right that must have been a big breakout film right? that, that even now people of my era remember that yeah, yeah visceral it was as well people do still remember that movie quite well you know and uh, new people are seeing that movie now which is very interesting to me and uh, but to finish with your question i sort of take it a moment at a time and um it was it was a beautiful sequence it was written quite well it was set up geniusly and and it made uh, the James Gunn makes it easy for the actors to be open and, and honest and real in the moment with his with his projects. So I'm he's very lucky. Parents and good question. No, that doesn't mean anything like that. Did I say something that insinuated? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, I'm not in that movie. <laughs> Unfortunately, you should have been. You should have been. Um, one thing that was beautiful to see in Guardians as well was you getting a chance to work with Sylvester again. It's great to see you guys on screen. How, 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 how was that? We had a great little scene together, yeah. You know, if you remember in, in uh, Cliffhanger, mm. I was the one yelling at him. <laughs> in this one, he was the one yelling at me. So it was just the out, we just flipped a little bit. It was really great to see him. So going back to your earlier film career, you yeah. were in more rats. Did this yeah. kind of give you an inkling of your comic book, the, the size of the comic book industry and working on it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew this. The comic book industry is massive, too. The gaming industry is massive. Yeah. And we are only now just beginning to be able to uh, utilize our, 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 uh, our technology to bring these things to life. And it's only going to get bigger and better and um, sweeter, you know, because we're going to be able to do... I mean, look at what you're seeing on the screen now. All that technology is only going to make uh, grow and make it simpler and easier and cheaper for filmmakers to, to bring almost anything to life and, and, and have it look 
very natural and very realistic. Oh, you're still afraid of chocolate-covered pretzels. <laughs> oh, no, I've never been afraid of chocolate-covered pretzels. As a matter of fact, on the contrary, I absolutely adore chocolate-covered pretzels, and I love them. Especially the, the it's, it's not an ad, but I love the Godiva chocolate-covered pretzels in a can. Dude, those are just killer. I could sit down and eat a whole can of those things in 10 minutes. From the can, not from the hand. <laughs> totally from the can, not from the hand, yeah. I'm Chris, can you talk a bit about the physical transformation you had to go through for Guardians, taking you from the handsome man in front of us to oh, uh, the blue, no. blue mohawks uh, creation we see in the film. He's too smart. <laughs> Way too smart. Okay, yeah, give me, what do you need? Well, I'm just I, talking about transforming physically for Yondu, because particularly in the second film with the prototype thing, that was, right. that was quite a burden you know, physically for Matt. It, it wasn't. The prototype fin, I thought, was uh, uh, just as easy to put on as the first in the first uh, film. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I so it was so easy. I I forgot it was on many times, you know, uh, and 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 forgot to duck. <laughs> I literally almost knocked myself out several times. You didn't even trail of blue paint all over it. No, the paint did not. It didn't come off. I could sweat through it. It was breathable. It was. They took several months to develop the paint. I had five, six layers of different shades, different colors of paint on me, and they would do uh, airbrushing it on. And um, so it was really quite thin. As I said, it was breathable. And it did not, even the first time I had it on, I went out and did a jog. I went out running around up and down stairs just to work up a sweat to see what would happen with the paint. You know? <laughs> she had a strange looks. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it was still top secret. So I had to run around the back lot and stuff and uh, got a good sweat going. And technically, it was beautiful. You know, I, could sweat, I was sweating. Uh, the paint was not dripping or anything. It, it didn't come off. It was well, the makeup uh, for Yandu, uh, as you know, we did two movies. The first, the first uh, uh, installment, Guardians of the Galaxy, took about four hours, all total, with all the prosthetics, all the painting, and the wardrobe, everything, about four hours. I was ready to go in four hours. We cut it by about 45 minutes in the second one. And um, and uh, we, I think we cut out one of the layers of paint and replaced it with a base layer of material that the removal happened quicker. So the base layer uh, protected my skin, made this layer of paint on my skin, and it, it was, I don't know what it was made of, but it helped everything else come off easier. So we cut it, uh, cut the time by 45 minutes to an hour. So it was... It, it, and the less time you're in the in the makeup chair, gives you more time to prepare, get ready for the, the scene, get your wardrobe on, chill out a little bit before you go and start looking for the How long was it to come on? It took about an hour and a half to get on. Uh, unlike a movie I did called Slither, <laughs> which is another James Gunn movie. That was a seven and a half hour. <laughs> yeah, and it took about two and a half hours to come on. Uh, one last question, a really good one now. How about the kids? You got a question? <laughs> Can I really whistle? <laughs> So that was the interview with Michael Rooker. Really, really enjoyed that one. He was really fun in the room. The last interview we have is with an actor who I absolutely love, Mark Shepard. If you don't recognise the name, I pretty much you guaranteed you've seen him in something at some point because his IMDb page, his list of credits 
is ridiculous. He's best known having spent eight years playing Crowley on Supernatural, but his other credits include Firefly, where he played Badger. He was in Battlestar Galactica. He's been in Warehouse 13. He's been in episodes of Doctor Who. He's been on NCIS, CIS, 24, Leverage, White Collar, Chuck, Burn Notice, Bionic Woman, Charmed, Star Trek Voyager, a million other shows. He's a lovely, wonderful guy. Uh, He's based out in LA. Um, We got to talk about him working on various different shows. Obviously, a lot of talk about Supernatural, some stuff about Battlestar and Firefly and working on Doctor Who as well. It was an interesting start to the interview because he was kind of in there and up for it. And uh, it was about 35 minutes long, the whole thing. I might have trimmed it a little bit for the podcast, but it was about 35 minutes long when we actually were in the room. He was just brilliant. It seemed a little spiky, but fun at the start. Really, really solid, great interview. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to him. It was an absolute pleasure. Kicks off the interview by talking about how he's not really keen on the term fan, which is kind of an interesting place to start. So uh, here you go. Here's the interview with Mark Shepard. Firstly, welcome to Birmingham. That's not a question. <laughs> Just a general hello. Um, so many, many, many franchises you've been part of. What's been your favourite thing? Franchises? That's a franchise? Firefly is a franchise. I would say it's a franchise. It's got no. video games. Random. It's, got... it's not a franchise. It's a random. Random. I hate the word fan. Do you? What fan stands for? No. Fanatic. Oh, yeah. It's a derogatory term created by people who didn't understand what having heroes was all about. So would you refer to, so what would you refer to people who would identify themselves as fans? What's your name? Callum. I'd refer, I'd refer to you as Callum. <laughs> <laughs> Fan is a really, it's a really weird word. It's a very negative, it has a very negative connotation. You've got to remember that for years and even, even still now, watch a news piece, say you watch a, a morning news piece on, oh, the MCM Expo is going to be in, in, in Birmingham, blah, 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 blah. Oh, news, what's happening this morning? The look on the face of most people will be talking is a bunch of sad people who live in their parents' basement, apparently, who all dress up as furries and do weird stuff and, you know, have no lives and do it. I mean, that's the context of what it is. Whereas in real life, when you do a show like Battlestar, you do a show like... Firefly, you meet a huge cross-section of, of the human race with multiply different jobs. We're all held together by a common thread of enjoying a particular show that has a voice or expresses itself in a certain way for them. Like the, the amount of trial lawyers that are enamoured by my character in Battlestar Galactica would, would be extraordinary. To me, you know, a you know, follower of football is nothing different to a follower of a TV series. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it is different, follower of football. Mm-hmm. It's a, a different than a follower of a But you can, you can be a, a fan of football as well in the same it's terms. It's very unlikely you that you'll dress as that footballer. Well, you get hundreds of them each week. No, that's <laughs> the, the old fat Eddie joke. And, you know, yeah. The bishop talks about it, saying, oh, yeah. we, need a, we need a striker. Here yeah, you, fat Eddie, come in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we're talking about a very, very different thing. And without putting too weird a spin on it, it's, like, for example, a show like Supernatural seems to attract as a tone of family and and, and doesn't matter if you're an underdog and, and there's a lot of really amazingly positive sort of fighting concepts behind it and it seems to be that you know there's, there's a lot more troubled people in the world than there ever used to be before 
or maybe they're just a bit more vocal than they used to be, or maybe we see more of them, maybe we have bigger conventions. Um, you know, men mental illness and, and, and mental difficulties and, and so, uh, social issues and, and are just prevalent in this day and age. It's, it's impossible to go through life without knowing somebody or being somebody that, that is affected by this. And what's fascinating to me about Supernatural is because there's a lot of amazing things that have been done by, by cast members and, and people around it, there is a sort of feeling of family, which is, you know, people will come together and bond together and help each other in the context of, of, of because we can, because we can help each other. And a lot of people feel outside the, norm, the realm of normal or outside the realm of help or outside the realm of society's norms tended to relate to the show. And I see the most incredible stuff being doing, done by Supernatural family, as they're called. The quote-unquote fans of Supernatural coming together to help other people to do stuff. And it's an amazing catalyst for that. We're not saving lives or doing it in that way. Well, Misha is a lot of the time. He's building hospitals and schools and stuff. <laughs> Um, we do a bunch for charity it's kind of fun but um, in truth it just has become this wonderful catalyst to, to, to signify people being able to come together and help each other and you're not alone and you're not this and you're not that and it's not it's not cynical and it's not negative and I'm very proud of how that has seemed to work because there seems to be a lack of that elsewhere in the world so I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage to wear your heart on your sleeve, should we say. So to dress as somebody who you idolize, or not even idolize anymore, it's just somebody, you're even trying to make a statement because the meaning of what you're wearing means something to, to other people. It's, it's kind of, it can be brilliantly witty, or, you know, people blending two characters together in a costume that just makes you laugh your ass off if you know what it is. So look how clever I am. It's, 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 it's in jokes and fun stuff because we've always been the outsiders. The geeks have always been the people that, that are looked down upon or you guys are weird. Well, no, actually we sort of like, you know, run your television stations and we make your content. And if you really look really closely, we're running the universe now. So the geeks have inherited the earth. But it's, it was always the guilty secret. Now it's actually kind of the norm in a way, is that, you know, to be a fan of something is is, is the is the norm. So maybe maybe we're changing the meaning of the word. Maybe it comes away from it. a word that's been taken back, definitely. I don't know if it's been taken back because you still see idiots talking about it like it's something derogatory. You're something less than because you're a fan of something. Oh, those fans of people dressing up in Star Wars costumes. It's like, yeah, for the last 30, 40 years, it's been pretty much people dressing up in Star Wars costumes. <laughs> but, you know, it's the fact that, you know, the 501st do massive charity work is kind of more interesting to me that people use it as a, as a, a way of coming together rather than a way of being separate. They used to use it to tell us we were weird. Now we're using it to come together to tell people that they should be paying attention to what's going on on the bloody planet. I think it's brilliant. I think it's really cool. And then you get, you know, the format and the delivery systems which we by which we've achieved our, our stories has changed so much. You know, you can only make a graphic novel out of that. It's not actually a derogatory term anymore. You know, that's not a failure that you've written a graphic no novel. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge success. It doesn't matter what format you do your story in. To have a story come out can be brilliant. But now, you know, you look at the first Battlestar Galactica and you could look at the first Battlestar Galactica as, even though it has the same basic story, the basic set of, same basic set of ideas as the, as Ron Moore's reimagining, it's an awfully cynical ripoff of Star Wars fans. <laughs> 
-hmm. If you really look, no matter how much you're trying to make it something that has this great base story and this idea of civilization and monotheistic and polytheistic societies and all the rest of this stuff and trying to find an earth, it all still turns into sort of Buck Rogers meets Star Wars, which was, I think, really sad about that. But now, you know, you get people like Rowan the, on the early edge of what we would call suicide television, I guess, because it's, you know, it's, oh, look, it's serialized. You can't possibly start it in the middle. You have to watch it from the beginning. Oh, look, it's sci-fi, but it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it didn't get cancelled. It's amazing. So now we've gone into box sets of that, so we'll watch box sets the way that we used to have to find that show on cable or whatever it is that way. And um, I just think it's brilliant. I think delivery systems are changing. I did buy only woman at a time when 11 million viewers was a disaster. That's funny to me. They pray for 11 million viewers now, or being able to, by their measuring systems, have 11 million viewers. You know, and I, was, I, was, I remember sitting with Eddie Olmos and like, so we've got 1.6 million viewers. How come I can't walk down the street without somebody going, great episode last night? Or, so we were the guilty secret of everybody. And the way they measured it was garbage. So it's fascinating for me to come to places like this all over the world and see the results of that. And to see another generation take the freedoms that come from going, we can dress any way we like and we can do anything we like and still hold down a job. <laughs> don't have to live in our parents' basement if we really don't want to, probably. It's kind of cool. It's, it's kind of amazing. And people with issues now have a safe place to come and be without being picked on. I think that's, you know, I, 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 that sounds so disingenuous to so many people that I know. But I think it's a lot safer place than the quote-unquote real world, which is, you know, go down the pub and be part of... So we can come to a place and like-minded people and be part of be part of a different universe. I think it's a, it's a fantastic thing. But all of which, all the good ones are all based on love, which is hardly a negative experience. I think it's kind of wonderful. Got any other questions? <laughs> <laughs> Covered it. Can I go home now? So um, when you're being approached or Thursday. for work, yeah, <laughs> are you particular about what it is that you, you get approached about. You know, I'm an actor, right? right. So basically we're just a whore in a dress. Um, am I particular? Are you, are you fussy, basically? Can't you be people so oh. Can I be fussy? Yeah. I don't know. You could, I, I, I could give you a really, a really, really good answer to that. I just thought of something. Uh, you do realise that the things that I did that you think are cool weren't cool before I did them. <laughs> You should put that on a t-shirt, we'll grab your next con with that on. No, you should put that on a t-shirt. You should wear that the next con I'm at. But it's true, it's the, it's the things that I've done that you think are cool. It's part of Firefly. I was in the pilot of Firefly, and made it, yeah? You think it's cool. So what, I go, oh, this is going to be cool. It's, 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 it's a weird thing. I've been at the, I don't know, maybe I get offered the jobs, everyone goes, either, oh, Mark will do that. It's kind of interesting. Because I've got a lot of friends who are writers who go, yeah, Mark will do that. Or it'll be, I have no idea what to do with this, what do you think? And it's like, hmm, if it's a story, an interesting thing. Crowley for me was a fascinating thing. It's because um, Kim Manners, I knew Kim Manners really well. Kim Manners had passed, and I'd never done Supernatural. I'd never been asked to do Supernatural. And they were, they were going through a period of time where they were auditioning for everything. They wouldn't give anything to anybody. And um, The Crossroads Demon came up, and uh, Ben had written it, and Kim had just passed. And so I was like, oh. Really? They've never asked me to do it ever, and here it shows up now. I'm like, eh, maybe this could be something really fun. But it was still something they didn't really know what they were going to do with it as far as long-term was concerned. It's very well written, but 
that suddenly turned into eight years. So you can't, you know, the shape of that changes what it is. I've been lucky enough that things, you know, there's only very few things I've ever done I don't like. And that's experiences of, with certain people that I thought would be fun and they're not. I'm sure there's plenty of people who work with me and I thought that was going to be fun and it wasn't. <laughs> um, you think of Firefly and Battlestar. Battlestar was written for me. It's the most amazing gift. Ron was like, oh, I have something for you. He goes, three episodes of Battlestar. I'm like, okay. He's like, I think you'll like it. It's like nothing else you've ever done. You know, I read it. I was like, oh, crap. So when your friends write you stuff, you've got to be really good. Because <laughs> otherwise you're letting down your friends and their bosses and their people and their stuff. And it's sort of like, oh, thanks for the burden. Somebody once asked me, did I improv in, in Battlestar? He's like, oh, such great, such great dialogue. I said, the dialogue's written, it's beautiful. It's well written, you can remember it for the next 25 years. Michelangelo created the, the character of Romo, which is actually short for Ron Moore. Romo. <laughs> it's, and I, I remember the dialogue we sang, but, but somebody said, like, well, so, you know, how much of it do you, do you make up? I'm like, let me read you something. So I, I picked up a script from Sun Also Rises, I think, and it said, uh, let me read you an action line, something you'd never be able to read because it's not dialogue. So it's a piece of instructions to either the reader, basically, to know what's happening in the room, right? And I think it's in the middle of the interrogation scene of the six, if you know anything through Battlestar or my part of Battlestar. She's essentially the witness for the prosecution and after talking to me, she stops being the witness for the prosecution. So it's a speech of some import. So in the midst of this speech is an action line that says, Lee, which is Apollo, looks up, but not at the six, at Romo, who removes his glasses for the first time, revealing eyes so exquisitely human as to require the veiling or unveiling at will. <laughs> I'm like, ah, yeah, all right, that could be tough. <laughs> I remember my conclusion on seeing it was like, yeah, not bad, I looked a bit tired, but so <laughs> it was that moment. And you, you realize the import of how things were written and why they're written. And that that, a lover of that, Amy Berg, was writing The Mark Shepherd in Leverage. It was called The Mark, I didn't know it was called The Mark Shepherd, but it was <laughs> Sterling. And you know, and you get this, this, I still had to fight to get it. It was just really funny, because that's the other thing is if friends write you stuff, they still go, great, but uh, Alan Cummings available. And you go, yes, he's great, he's wonderful, but this is Mark. If you look at the graphic novel, that's him in a gorilla suit with two Tommy guns. That's his face. <laughs> I said, yeah, he's great. What about The Rock? It's like, The Rock is not going to do this. You know, let's, uh, why don't we get Mark to do it, seeing as it's Mark? <laughs> um, so you still get the fight that's in that, but uh, so to, uh, to answer it, you know, we're whores in dresses, but you want everything to be good, but not everything can be good. Some things you get afraid of, and sometimes it's a good idea to do it. And then sometimes I have friends that throw me in the rabbit hole, you know? So you never know. Stuff I want to do, and sort of go off in that direction. I just did eight years of a character. It's kind of fun to do it, aren't I? Did I answer your question? Yeah. yeah. A long way. <laughs> you have a question? What have you got in the pipeline to do next? Is no, there your damn business. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I tell you? Interesting. I don't need to announce stuff, do I? <laughs> if I've got something to announce, I'll announce it. I'm actually on tour right now with Robin Hitchcock, who's a, a, a musician that I played with 1981 and 1982, which will age everybody in this room. If you can remember it, that means you're old. So when I was 17, I played with Robin Hitchcock in his uh, first or second band after the Soft Boys. And last year, we started playing again. Well, he's always played, so but last year, I started playing drums again. So... I'll be back in May playing Manchester Academy 
We're doing uh, Mark Riley radio station. And then we're going down to London and play University of London Union, which I haven't done in 35 years. So that should be fun. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it's, you know, Luther Russell playing guitar and, and Tony Buchan playing bass, which are two of them, two monster producers in their own right, let alone great musicians. But uh, so if anyone's bored, <laughs> 11th and 12th of May will be very exciting. We'll be here and down there. Isn't that weird I'm doing that? So starting again. I've got like an article in Modern Drummer coming out. <laughs> oh, so I took this huge break from drumming and then came back to it and so much fun doing it. So much, of course, you know, doesn't hurt that I get to do it without having to sleep in a van. <laughs> so it's kind of good. You want a question? Oh, yeah. Um, after like playing a character for so long, do you notice... What do you mean so long? How old are you? <laughs> <laughs> 16. <laughs> So oh, after playing a character for half of your life, <laughs> see, it's not half of my life. Do you, you say, no, it's, it's fascinating to me when you say so long. It's like you don't realize when you're doing it how long that period of time is. You know, when you're three, a year is a third of your life. Yeah. When you're 80, it really isn't. Uh, but like, do you notice still, still, If you realize I'm probably not going to answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> do you notice the character development or do you look back and be do like... Do I notice the wow, character development? Different. Barry Corbin had a really interesting thing he said to a friend of mine. He was like, talking about his career. Like, oh, come on, career, career. He said, actors don't have careers. He goes, you work, you don't work, you get old, you look back and you go, oh, look, I had a career. <laughs> <laughs> it's, relative, it's, it's subjective and objective depending on what you're doing. You can't... It's not a job. You don't just apply for the job and get the job and, and that's your career and that's what you do and I'm going to be doing six years over here. And I'm going to, Nobody knew how long anything was going to run for or, or not. Firefly really thought it was going to run forever. You know, but it was at a time when terrestrial television was a disaster. And with 11 million viewers, it was a disaster, which is now a huge hit. So relative to it, you don't, I don't know. You, just sort of, you don't look back, you do the next thing. People remind you, you remind. What's, the, what's your favorite thing that I do? Anything? You ever watch me do anything? <laughs> do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? That was the most fun I've ever had. They asked me to do Doctor Who. They called me out and asked me, do you want to be in Doctor Who? I'm like, what? <laughs> you want to play James Bond in Doctor Who is basically what they said in 1969. I'm like, yeah, pretty much. And then I couldn't do it because Supernatural were like, oh, we've got the schedule problem. I'm like, and I was literally had to call them and say, I can't do this. And luckily a man called Marcus Wilson, who used to work on Taggart and worked on Doctor Who and stuff, said, hold on a second, are you working right now? I'm like, no. He says, when are you getting a plane on Saturday? And we flipped the schedule the other way around. I was like... Then I got a phone call from Warner Brothers going, tell us you didn't just get on a plane. <laughs> oh, maybe I should have asked some permission first. <laughs> so I had to call Sarah Gamble up, who was the showrunner at the time. I said, I think I just stuffed up really badly. She said, what'd you do? I said, well, I'm kind of doing Doctor Who. She said, all right, I'll call you back. I said, I was back, actually, fine. I got a phone call from the first AD going, fine. Go <laughs> to bloody England or Wales or wherever that you are. You better be back on Tuesday. <laughs> I'm like, I'll be back. So I flew back with some floors to do and Matt is lovely and Arthur's lovely and, and God, she's lovely. And they're all just amazing. They're all just so much fun to do. They used to sing in between shots to each other. So it's a weird choral singing. They're just pleasant people. They're lovely to work with. Matt's, you know, he's a wicked actor. Arthur's actually a wicked, really wicked actor. And it's just fun to do it, watching him do it with no money. No money. And yet, 
you know, absolutely all out. Because the way they make American television is based on the idea that you're actually shooting something that, that would take 10 or 12 days to shoot in eight days. So you have to work out how overtime works. So you now have to build overtime into how you make something happen. In England, because the unions got busted, you don't have overtime. So I said, it says we stop at seven o'clock. Um, what happens if we go over? Oh, we don't go over. <laughs> what do you mean you don't go over? So I don't go over. So why not? Because, well, we'd have to poll everybody and find out if they were busy. <laughs> what do you mean? I, I can't tonight. Uh, my auntie Mabel is coming over. <laughs> Sorry. I was like, really? Like, yeah. So they shoot in their time period and they get it right and they work damn hard to do it. And I remember standing there going, you know, so even in the green room, there's a there's a like a craft service area, whatever you call it. So the idea, by the way, was invented by the Americans to stop union workers taking breaks. So you can go get food anytime you like. That was the idea. So you wouldn't have regimented breaks. So I was like, do you have a craft service table? I don't know. We don't have one of those. <laughs> Would you like one? No, no, we don't want one of those. There's a girl who come around about four o'clock with a cup of tea and a biscuit. <laughs> Great. And she had a firefly tattoo on her ankle. It's <laughs> lovely. So it was just, it was a different way of doing things. It was a, and it was so much fun to do. Moffat said something brilliant about that afterwards because he said to play a character, uh, he said he was kind of, I think he said he was kind of uncomfortable with the gay characters that he'd written so far with, you know, in the context of Captain Jack being almost a stereotype in a way of what it was that he was doing. And somebody interviewed him, it was, it was just fascinating. He goes, what was funny was none of those characters that I wrote represented anybody I knew that was gay. He was like, <laughs> but he said, what was weird was he decided to write Canton, although... So, so the fact that Canton was gay was a, was a big part of Canton's story, but it's not the only bloody thing we're dealing with with Canton and the entire thing, which I thought was a fascinating way to go. And I think, off, you know, kind of off the record, he, he said uh, they were worried that an American actor would actually be willing to play that role. That it's that the payoff in, in the end of the second episode is so unmacho. And I'm like, no, it's brilliantly macho. It's because you're finally not playing an effete character with an issue. It's like it's James Bond with an issue. It's kind of fun, which actually reflects, I thought, always reflect people like it better than the way it was done. So I, I, I love the fact that I could go to conventions and people would have a picture of me and Nixon. You know, me and Stuart, there's Nixon, it's like, me too. <laughs> or he is, you know, it's kind of funny. It's just, uh, it's kind of cool. So there was a lot of stuff about that that was very different. But, you know, also then there was the low budget element. And we had the Oval Office, but you couldn't step on the carpet because it was only freshly painted. We only have one with the eagle on it. So if we're not shooting the floor, can we please stay up on off that part of the carpet? So it's very BBC. My favourite bit was, you know, they have to fly you, if you if you're travelling to work, they have to fly you first class, it's a union thing. So I'm expected to be able to get off a plane and go to work. And so, you know, they booked me a flight and I get a phone call from some department of the BBC saying, hello, yes, this is the travelling something, weights and measures department of the BBC. And uh, we have to ask you a question. I said, sure, of course, well, what's the question? Would you be willing to fly premium economy? I'm like, would I? <laughs> <laughs> So there's, I'm like, is, is, is there an issue here? Go, oh, no, no, no. We're, we're just, we're a publicly funded company and we have to ask. <laughs> I'm like, so let me ask you a question in response to what I said. 
Has anybody ever said yes when you've asked me? She goes, no. I said, don't be surprised by my answer. <laughs> I always thought that was so quaint and brilliant. And weird. You know, being English and having never really worked in England, apart from I did it in the name of the father after I'd been working in America. So a film with Jim Sheridan and Daniel Day-Lewis is a very different proposition than doing British TV or even American TV. It's a very, very different, it's a different world. It's a different setup around you. It's a, it's a bubble in a very different way. It's like a year of my life almost. So to come back and do Who in, in Cardiff is just like, oh, this is so much fun. You know, if you, they gave me my per diems, they gave me an envelope and I was like, you know, you get money for every day so you can eat and stuff. So I got an envelope and it had 180 quid in it. And I was like, that's one, thank you very much. I said like, how long is this for? Is this, and they're like, oh, shut up. I'm like, what do you mean, shut up? It's like, it's for the duration. I went, 10 pounds a day. You pay me 10 pounds a day to eat, make phone calls, wash my socks. Do I'm like, interesting. Hasn't changed in 25, 30 years. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is really funny. It's really great. I'm like, I've got money. I, don't, I didn't, didn't need the money, but I thought, oh, that's really cute. I just got paid 10 pounds a day to eat. <laughs> so I go over to the, uh, to the food bus, you know, the never had much of Aston Villa supporters. It was really funny. Bunch of thugs. <laughs> Aston Villa. Great cooks. Food was amazing. I thought I was expecting it all to be yellow like all the food used to be in the BBC. And uh, I got up there and I kept my breakfast. Oh, Mark, hey, it's nice to see you. By the way, here's your breakfast, blah, blah, blah. That'll be two pounds, please. I'm like, what? Two, you got to pay two pounds for your breakfast. I'm like, really? I only just got given ten. <laughs> so I paid two pounds for breakfast, four pounds for lunch. They took six quid off me before I left the lot. I'm like, I'm getting stuffed here. So, you know, and you realise that people... You know, the hairdressers and the makeup artists that worked on that also worked on Treasure Island that my dad had done in Jamaica. And they're the same, they've been working for the BBC for the same, but they've been getting the same mileage allowance since 1973. <laughs> so you realize after a while that a lot of people here make what they make from a sense of love and want and desire to make the best possible thing that it can make. It's not a cynical thing. It's not, you know, like, sports or wherever where it's all you know it's it's literally to get this done is going to be impossible we'll never have enough money so how do we do it and it's it's lovely to watch that that was the way the who was done which is the same way as supernatural is done which is the same way as firefly and battlestar and everything else is done. there you go there should be enough material for you for a couple of minutes <laughs> anything else you either played a young version of Hardy, you've hardly played an old version yourself quite a few times. Is it weird when you're both on set together? Does it have a different kind of feel to a normal set when you're, when you're both there at the same I've directed, time? We weren't both there at the same time. I was there when, but if we're playing the same role, we're not there at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> we have been at the same time, but uh, I directed him in a film. I gave, I gave him a huge set of speeches to learn. But I gave him like two and a half weeks to learn it. I was like, it's okay. He decided not to not to learn the bits that said voiceover. Because he said, well, I'll just do them in the studio. I'm like, thanks for forcing my cuts. <laughs> so like, I, now I have to not shoot you doing that. Oh, so you're telling me that's where I'm going to be cutting just because it says, that's what it says in the script. What's your problem? So it's this huge argument. As I go away, I've got headphones. So I'm walking away, bitching and moaning about me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to say, turn your microphone off and you're cursing out the door. <laughs> Sorry. It's just funny. You realise you're not immune from anything. You know, but NCIS was hysterical to do. They're like, do you want to come do your dad's flashbacks? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It's so much fun to do. 
And then the who came about because they said, so when are you going to be able to come over and do the prosthetics? I'm like, oh, well, the old, uh, the older, uh, oh, why don't you just call my dad? <laughs> anyway, do you think he'd do it? I'm like, of course he'd do it. It's Dr. O, it'd be hysterical. <laughs> he's like, so I called him up. He's like, oh, sure. I didn't ask him. I just said, sure, he'd do it. No problem at all. So I called him. I said, oh, you're going to do Dr. Who? He goes, oh, it's not all bloody cardboard and string still, is it? I said, no, it's actually very good. You'll enjoy it. He goes, oh, I saw a bit. I said, I saw a bit on BBC America. It was very good, actually. So I like that Matt Smith boy. It's very good. <laughs> so he got to play with him. He loves him. It's so much fun. Going back over your filmography, you've actually done a, a, a quite a good mix of both crime dramas and things like Supernatural, Warehouse 13. Do you do you have a preference for doing sort of the realistic NCIS CSI thing or the kind of the more fanciful Supernatural and sliders and... Sliders? Well, you threw that one in. <laughs> <laughs> Got kicked in the face and that. Um, what's funny about sliders? We shot that on the lot at Universal, and we had to stop filming for the trams to be able to go past full of tourists. <laughs> so when you realise that the trams going past full of tourists make more money than the television show, it's when you get humbled by the idea of what we're actually doing here. Um, the thing about sci-fi and quote-unquote genre shows is that involves a large amount of imagination and what if and, and it's a fascinating thing to do and even the stuff that's placed in history is still imagination and what if and it's you build a world you inhabit the world and I've been very lucky in that stuff but I've always always found there's very little difference between that and the stuff that I've done in 24 or NCIS or CSIs I mean the, C, the, the, C, the last CSI episode I did was written by two writers from Battlestar <laughs> and the joke is my character's name is the name of the Russian premiere in Doctor Strangelove if you look it up Dimitri yes something Dimitri yes Dimitri no 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 Dimitri he's calling him in the in the whole house we got in the morning as the missiles are going sapping our precious fluids um, but yeah so uh, David Weddle and, and his writing partner wrote that episode which is hysterical when did uh, Las Vegas because it's like do you want to go hang out with James Caan and Alec Baldwin for a week <laughs> and my job was just to get them to tell stories the director couldn't come anywhere near him until the story had finished it was absolutely the most hysterical stuff going on foul mouthed awful <laughs> brilliantly funny stuff for a week so yeah I mean but storytelling storytelling if you've got to, if you've got to, In the Name of the Father was my first film when I, I, I met the man that I played but it's still imagination and Trying to live truthfully under imaginary circumstances. Just more fun, I guess, if you get to kill six or seven billion people. <laughs> you know, people are like, so what did you do to prepare your role for Crowley? I was like, yeah, I went out and murdered people and tortured them. <laughs> <my friends." laughs> it's all what if, you know? It's all kind of what if. Maybe I'm still just playing the same role over and over again. <laughs> oh, God, so depressing. <laughs> I don't know. That's it. I told this story yesterday. It's my favorite thing ever. It was a woman from TV Guide who was on the TV Guide boat in San Diego. She was, she was setting up the interview. It was the 74th interview of the day. And Misha and myself had come in and sat down at the end of the boat. And it's hot and sticky and the sun is shining at Comic-Con. We're on the water and everybody's been down there. She's not even looking at Fine. The camera, yes, great, wonderful. She goes, okay, okay. Okay, we're rolling, yes. And she looks up for the first time at me and goes, so, what's left for you? <laughs> 
I'm like, excuse me? She meant what's next for you, and she said what's left for you. And I, unfortunately, that just keeps ringing in my ears every time I'm not working. <laughs> what's left for me? There's always King Lear. No, I never wanted to do King Lear. That's not what I would do. I'm much more likely to play a fool or a... So I've got an idea. Me and Tony Lee have an idea for something we're trying to do so we'll see if that comes off that would be something really fun to do I'd love to do a series in England I'd love to do a series in England maybe I got to the point where I want to do a Luther or a Cracker or something that's just brilliant maybe we have to write it which we may be doing but or it's it's time for me to do something that I love in that context so I've never worked here I've never done anything here I'm so close to doing stuff but who and, and the bits of the in them and father we did in Manchester and Liverpool were the only stuff I've done Never acted in this country. It's weird, isn't it? It'd be nice to come back and play some pompous ass that went to America and <laughs> came back and, you know, how oh, are you back then? <laughs> yeah, it's nice and hot in America, is it? Down and out in Birmingham. Birmingham. So that was the interview with Mark Shepard. I hope you really enjoyed that. We will be back to a normal show next week with uh, all your usual stuff. In the meantime, if you want to find the video versions of any of those interviews, you can find them up on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash geektown. If you want to get the latest air date stuff, you can find it on the website at geektown.co.uk. If you've got any questions or comments, email them to us on podcast at geektown.co.uk. You can find us at geektown on twitter on facebook at facebook.com forward slash geektown and on instagram at geektown uk particularly if you're a cosplayer there's loads of cosplay photos up on there just gone up from the weekend so go and check those out that's everything for this week we shall see you with a normal show next week bye bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.